0: You are listening to a podcast from Providence Reformed Baptist Church. If you would like to listen to more of our sermons, please visit our website at providencewi.org. Please stay standing just a little bit longer. We're going to read from the Gospel of John chapter 19. We want to welcome you if you are visiting with us today. And uh, those of you regulars, I would assume that you'll find a way to welcome them too if you haven't already. We've been working our way through John's Gospel we are closing in on, while this is called the gospel, we're, we're closing in on the message of the gospel. The central message of Christianity cannot cut out the ends of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and for that matter, the rest of the, the New Testament scriptures. The plan of the ages is all about this Savior who bore sins, who he is as well as what he did, and rising from the dead to prove that the sacrifice was accepted before the Father. So we read of Christ died for our sins, this first gospel statement that, that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians. We begin at verse 31 of John chapter 19. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken so that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. So one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out and he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe for these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture not a bone of him shall be broken and again another scripture says they shall look on him whom they pierced. Let's pray. Our Father, we are people who have many distractions coming into a setting like this. Some, some of them are in the room, some of them are in our minds. Uh, we can't uh, escape the fact that, that we are prone to wander in our thinking and our behavior. But we're asking you, because this time has been set aside for worship of the eternal God, that you would give us an extra measure of your grace to pay attention to listen, uh, not simply to your messenger, who's uh, certainly giving, giving his opinions about your word, uh, but we'll ask that you would help us to, to have communication of what your intent is. We know there is one interpretation of the scripture, and we ask that you would help us not only to have an academic understanding, but that leaving with the right applications, which are many, uh, we would be different. You, you send your word for a purpose. So change us, we pray. Help us to have hope. Bring those who aren't assured that they have life right now and, and life beyond the grave. Assure them that's found only in this one who hangs on the cross as we study these words, who, who was placed in a tomb, who rose again the third day. He is our hope. We thank you for that clear, powerful message. In his name we come, amen please be seated. There are certain memorable moments in my 30 years in Rice Lake, which were not quite there yet by June. Uh, the certain things that stand out in my mind and, uh, I have to say, some of you have shared those moments with me, and some of the most memorable moments are when I said embarrassing things <laughs> or did embarrassing things. This isn't one of those, but this past week is one of those. Uh, one of those moments, as I, I was standing down here i get to teach the the kids quest kids on wednesday nights and with the teens and with the the little ones i allow for question and answer time and so if it's something you know i don't i don't want it, why is the sky blue that's that's something that you can you can ask at another time but but questions about the bible questions about their their catechism questions and answers things they want to know you know why do we why do we eat those crackers and and drink those little cups uh and why do we put people under the water some of those good questions that I've gotten but one very honest small child uh first question of the evening uh probably a 4-year-old so you can just try and figure out who it was I'm not going to tell you the question the hands raised I said yes and the, the child said why do we talk about Jesus so much around here <laughs> and I I won't I won't forget that because not only was, I, I, I didn't laugh out loud. I, I did share it with the teenagers and I shared it with my family when I got home that evening. It really is a good question, isn't it? And my answer, by the way, was, first of all, we would, really wouldn't have much to talk about if we didn't talk about Jesus all the time around here. But isn't that a legitimate question to ask? Why would we need to? For that matter, couldn't God, because He's called himself good and merciful. Couldn't God just say, oh, you, all you little dickens, I'm just going to let you into heaven. You know, no, don't worry about this gospel stuff. Just say you believe in a God and, and we'll take you in. Most of you, I'm guessing, most of you here would say, no, no, it has to be all about Jesus. And yet there are many professing Christians whose, whose testimony is this. Yeah, I just, I started believing in God and you need to believe in God too. There's a content to what Christians must believe according to God, according to the God of the Bible. There's a, a certain content that we must believe if we want to be saved. In other words, salvation is not just about saying, I believe in God. If that were true, all of the main world religions believe in a God or gods. Is, is, there, more, is there more to Having forgiveness of sins than believing that there is a higher power in the world, and I would argue because John is arguing that yes there's a there is a a key verse in the Gospel of john it's coming up, and he's going to to reach Forward to that in just a little bit, right in our text for today. But having spoken of the resurrection of Christ. Now keep in mind, this has been a long time. We've been in this in this Gospel of John for a couple of years now. Maybe more than that. I need to look at my calendar. But John started out in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he came to identify the Word as Jesus, God the Son. Very God of very God, we would confess in in one of the Christian confessions of faith. Truly God, yet taking on human flesh. This is what, the way John started out, very different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He started out saying, this is who Jesus is. He is God. He is God the Son. He is the Son of God. He had a real body as he walked the earth. That's becoming significant where we are now. We've talked about the beatings that Jesus endured. We've talked about the emotions that the Lord Jesus exhibited, the pain that he felt in many ways. And now we have the Lord Jesus hanging on the cross, dead. That, that is our whole text for today in John 19, 31 to 37. In this whole section we're studying today, God the Son, whom John introduced to us at the beginning of this book, is hanging, his body is hanging dead on the cross. And John is going to tell us later, you know why I wrote these things down? I mean, he's an eyewitness to so much of this. He's one of the inner three disciples. He's the first cousin of the Lord Jesus, most likely. And, and John says, I, there were so many other things Jesus did in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. He's just talked about the cross. He's just talked about the empty tomb, the physical resurrection of Jesus. And he says, I wrote these things down so that you would believe, not just believe in a higher being, but that you would place your trust in this person and in what he did so we're going to look here at what he did. And my, my challenge for you today is hopefully what John is challenging us to. And that is there, is there are certain things that you and I must believe about Jesus in order to be counted his followers. There are some things that are non-negotiable. So we look into the text and John says, then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. Ask Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. Uh, even though the, the Roman style of crucifixion did not exist in 1400 BC, when Moses recorded the law. Uh, there were principles involved. In fact, what you're seeing today, and you see this this with some of the other Gospels, but John in particular, John's mind is just churning the whole time he's observing what happened. The events that led up to the arrest of Jesus, the disciples taking off after the arrest of Jesus, following at a distance, in fact, getting Peter into Pilate's uh, praetorium uh, into the outer area, getting Peter in so he could warm himself at the fire and of course deny the Lord three times. John was an insider. John is watching all of these things and even though he's moved along by the Holy Spirit to write these things down, there is a, a personal record and as John watched these things, scripture is going through his mind. All the things he learned his entire life in in his synagogue experience, in his temple experiences, the words the Lord Jesus had taught him for the last three years all these things are going through his mind. Even though crucifixion did not exist in 1440 BC when Moses wrote these things down, there was a principle from Deuteronomy chapter 21. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he's put to death, in other words, in Israel, these are laws for national Israel and you hang him on a tree, it doesn't say how, and this isn't talking about crucifixion because it didn't exist as the Romans did it. But he's talking about someone who is executed and hung on a tree. It says, His corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Well, we could jump off from here very quickly into the book of Galatians, because. Paul took what Moses said here and what John records in John's gospel and says, don't you get it? It's a curse to be hung on a tree. It's a curse to disobey the law of God, which means that all of us as lawbreakers deserve the curse, but that one who hung on the tree for us took the curse for us. Sweet theology here. This is more than just a record of a historical account. John is brewing on all of these things and he's, as he's watching from a distance, the religious leaders are saying, hey, you gotta take these guys down. We can't let this happen. Tomorrow's a high day. It's not just a Sabbath. It's a high Sabbath. John mused as he watched this happening. I want to make a comment about that day of preparation because that was another reason for their haste. Um, Sundown would not only mark the start of the Sabbath, but this is Passover Sabbath. It was going to be a high day. Uh, To use our language, uh, it would have been bad luck to leave a body on a gibbet during the feast. The breaking of the legs, by the way, prevented crucifixion victims um, from pushing upward which would allow them to breathe uh, and that would prolong their death. And so it it was in in a lot of people's minds seen as an act of mercy to the victims. Uh, It it may also have been seen as obedience to the law of Moses. But I I will have to say, and this is, again, this is Steve's opinion. I, I know that there are times in scripture where we find out what the motivation was because the Bible uh, being God's word gives us motivations. We're not told what the motivation of the religious leaders was here. But Steve's guess is that it was extreme hypocrisy uh, when they asked for this in obedience to the law, of taking down of the bodies. It was kind of like their fear of defilement in Pilate's Hall, uh, the leaders obeyed Jewish laws and customs only when it's, it was convenient. So part of their custom was to not try someone for a capital offense at night, but they made an exception with Jesus. But they didn't want to go into a, to Pilate's hall. And now after the crucifixion is done, they got what they wanted. Pilate gave them what they wanted. They said, well, we don't want any defilement going on here, so you better take, take those bodies down. It's not only a Sabbath, it's Passover Sabbath. So the soldiers came. Uh, they, they listened. Remember, Pilate is trying to keep the peace. It's a feast time in Jerusalem. The soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. And of course, the two thieves died shortly after this happened. They, they died. And I, I don't, I'm not trying to be gruesome, but this is a gruesome thing we're reading about here. So you can't get around this. They suffocated. Uh, they they were no longer able to breathe and so that is most likely what, what took their lives. Uh, a, a sobering thought here when you compare all four gospels is that only one of those two men who expired at this point had the Lord's promise of hope beyond death's door. He died having heard perhaps some of his last words he heard in this world were Surely today you will be with me in paradise. And it was based on the faith of that man, the king who hung there beside him saw genuine faith in his heart and he had hope. So you have three dead men crucified as criminals hanging on those crosses. Coming to Jesus, verse 33 says, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. And we'll back up and, and John, we don't know how far away John was, but they're on this hill, the skull hill, Calvary of Golgotha. And they're up on this hill and there are three dead men hanging on the cross. And John has heard the things that the Lord Jesus has said uh, to the people standing by. He heard the things that Jesus said to him, take care of my mom. He heard the forgiveness Jesus cried out because of the ignorance of those soldiers who were doing these horrible things. He heard the Lord Jesus say, I am thirsty. He heard the Lord Jesus most recently say, it stands complete. Tetelestai, he screamed, father into your hands, I commit my spirit. He is dead. He sees that. He sees the soldiers come to the first two guys, broke their legs, came to Jesus. It must've been very obvious that the Lord Jesus was already dead. But John was thinking about more than just what was going on here. As I said, most likely scripture is going through his mind because he keeps bringing scripture in through this whole account. John may have been thinking at this point about what the Lord said earlier. This is in in the the text where Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. This is, this is the one. I'm, the, I'm Psalm 23. I'm the one that David talked about in Psalm 23. I'm the Lord. I'm Jehovah. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And in verses 17 and 18, surely John remembered, for this reason the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. Did anyone hearing those words really understand at that point in time that the Lord was talking about his giving his life for his sheep, as this text says. Giving his life for his sheep and then rising from the dead in a body. But Jesus said it. In fact, he says, no one has taken, taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. He knew the mission. It wasn't that he felt peace about the mission. It was that it was the right thing to do to be perfectly obedient to his father. So as John watches, one of the soldiers pierced his side with the spear. And while we don't know all of the details, we do know that when we when we get a couple of chapters from now, at the very end of the Gospel of John, when Thomas, we call Thomas the Doubter, right? When Thomas said, "I haven't seen him. You guys say he's alive. I won't believe it." Thomas somehow had seen what is going on here, and he said, "Unless I can put my fingers in those nail prints, and he didn't say put my fingers into the side. He said put my hand into his side. That that tells me that this was, and again, we're being we're being just." Honest, like John is being honest. This must have been quite a gash that that spear left because he didn't say, Put my fingers, he said, Put my hand in his side. The soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And I know some have spiritualized this, and I think that's, I think there, there may be some things going on here that, that God did beyond just evidence uh, that a death had happened. Uh, i 've heard all sorts of descriptions of of what happens to to blood that somehow blood separates and some of you medical people i 'd love some insight on this uh, but uh, i i don 't think this was the the picture that he was already dead that there was water and blood that came out uh, they may have pierced the the pericardium. He may have had a lot of fluid building up around his heart and lungs. We're not told precisely where that spear went in. All we know is it was obvious that Jesus was already dead. And to make sure he was dead, one of the soldiers took a spear and put a significant hole in the side of Jesus. And immediately, as John is watching, he he saw two colored liquids come out blood and water Again, the piercing was likely carried out to assure that Jesus was dead. If he looks dead, but let's let's give him a wound that would make sure that he is No question about it at this point, friends. And so John says, "And he who has seen has testified all of the things John calls himself, everything but John, right? In this gospel, uh, that other disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who put his head on Jesus' breast at, at the Last Supper, and and now he calls himself he who has seen. He's, he's talking about himself. John says, he who has seen. That's That's the one. I am giving you this message as an eyewitness. At this point, I'm not John, I'm just he who has seen. He who has seen has testified and his testimony is true. In other words, I know what I saw. I know what I saw. I'm laying out before you what happened. He knows that he's telling the truth. Do you see a similarity between this and the first verse that I read uh, at the beginning of this message? John 20, 31 says, I've written these things to you that that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And believing is going to bring you life. That believing you may have life in his name. John says, I saw this. I told you what I saw because I want you to believe it. I have written these things so that you may believe. John, John wanted to persuade his readers, and that includes you, readers of all ages to believe what he believed about Jesus. And so I pause and I look and I make eye contact with as many of you as I possibly can and say, do you? I'm not asking, have you gone to church? Have you been a church officer? Have you been baptized or confirmed? I'm saying, do you really believe this? Is is this King Jesus your master and your rescuer? Because if that isn't your personal faith, you are outside the faith of the apostle John and the other apostles. John had an agenda. And yes, he speaks forcefully. There is, there is no middle ground here. There is no, well, I kind of do. This is a casting your sinful bulk on the only hope you have. And the only hope you have at this point, even though we know the end of the story, that thief on the cross believed even though he hadn't seen the end of the story, John says, I want you to believe. You are seeing this one hanging dead on a cross. I want you to believe. I'm writing this to you so that you may also believe. Also meaning, believe along with me. He had an agenda. It was to persuade you, reader, to believe what he believed about Jesus. And then he says, you know why this happened? These things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. More scripture running through his mind as he's here. Okay, Law of Moses said, take the, take the body down from the tree because the person there is under a curse. And, and now he says, you know, they didn't break his legs. Have you ever had one of those moments? There is no one narrating this scene, Right? David narrated the scene in Psalm 22 a thousand years earlier and Jesus is quoting that as he's hanging on the cross. John heard that too but there's no one saying hey guys do you see did you see that? John is left with the spirit of God speaking to him drawing to his mind the scriptures that he knew so well and he says I know why this happened. Why they, they came to the other two and they broke their legs and they came to Jesus and, and he was already dead so they didn't have to break his legs. David spoke prophetically uh, in the middle of a, a thankful song Psalm 34 is, I think we even had a portion of that in our our wedding bulletin when Sarah and I got married. Uh, But Psalm 34 was was written in this context. David had gone down to Gath, um, maybe an ill-timed trip. He went down to Gath. He's trying to escape from the hands of Saul and, and he's in this city, he's, he's killed the city hero. I mean, if there was a statue on the town square in Gath, it was Goliath. And here's the guy who killed Goliath, carrying Goliath's sword, and he's there in the town. And, and the people said, wait a minute, isn't this the one they've been singing about since he had killed so many Philistines, including Goliath? And David realized this probably wasn't a real good idea. And so he pretended to be crazy and this scratching wood and slobbering on his down on his face. And uh, in the providence of God, the king of Gath said, get him out of here. I don't need more crazy people. And so God, God delivered David through that creative act. But he wrote Psalm 34 as a, a song of rejoicing. It was one of those psalms. But in the middle of this, he's thinking about how God preserved him and probably of himself, thinking about what the Philistines could have done to him, he says, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. In other words, the Lord preserved the bones of the one he rescued. So it is possible that this is the text John is thinking of. In fact, the the words in John's gospel most closely resemble Psalm 34. Sometimes you have direct quotes, sometimes you have paraphrases, there is one other possibility, though. It's also possible that John was thinking about the command from the original Passover. Remember, we're at Passover. There were specific instructions about the sacrifice of the lamb. they they choose the lamb. They would keep it with them for four days. They would take it before the priests. They would slit its throat. They would drain the blood out into a basin. The blood would be put where it needed to be put. The, the animal was sacrificed, and, and they would actually take the lamb back, and they would cook it and, and eat it as a part of Passover celebration, remembering what happened in Egypt when God delivered them. Before the first Passover... In speaking about the eating of the lamb, the Lord said it is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. I can't say which text, uh, maybe both, John is referring to here, but I can say that John is musing and he's saying, this is to fulfill the scripture. Jesus is hanging there and they came and they were going to break his bones And he realized what was going on. It didn't stop there because John said, and again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. This is from Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. So the prophet Zechariah hundreds of years later is is saying there's hope for the house of David. This this captivity is not going to be permanent. We're, We're going to bring the house of David back but it's more than just putting another son of David on the throne. This looked forward to the crucified Christ. Actually, in Revelation chapter 1, in fact, I'd like you to, to go there with me really quick before we come back to John. This same John later in his life was banished to an island called Patmos and uh, wound up, ended his life probably at Ephesus. But, but his primary ministry to us came from Patmos in, in writing the book of Revelation. We don't exactly know precise dates of revelation and people have theological reasons for believing whether revelation was was written before or after the destruction of the temple. That's for another lesson. But I want you to note in the in the book the book of Revelation written by this same John verse 4 of chapter 1 John to the seven churches that are in Asia and one of them being his church in Ephesus. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. See, John is writing this thing as, as an eyewitness to all of it. Yes, he's alive, but I saw the blood, I saw that. And he made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. And now John says, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. So John is referring twice to this text from Zechariah. And the point is this, these things were very specifically not only predicted, but planned. It was no accident that we go through the Old Testament scriptures and you see all of these references to the coming of Messiah, to where he was going to be born, to the approximate time he was going to be born, the circumstances of his birth, the place of his birth, what would happen after his birth, what would happen during his ministry, how he would be betrayed by a friend, how he would be delivered up, in fact, how he would be crucified and even rise from the dead. All of these things were predicted centuries, millennia, before they happened. But it was more than a prediction. It was a promise. It was a plan. I said the the theme verse that I, I I read at the very beginning of this time from John chapter 20 and verses 30 and 31. Jesus did a lot of things, John says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I just have to say, it's easy to get confused regarding just what the content of the gospel is that Christians confess. And and I have asked this in a number of settings, including in this church. And I don't want you to get super nervous about this. I'm not saying if you can't take the test and get it just the way Steve thinks it ought to turn out, you're not really a Christian. But I am saying this if we were to give you a quiz right now and I said, What's the gospel? Write it down. And I, I just know for a fact that, that we're frail. Our minds sometimes don't pick up on things. And I would get a number of answers that probably are insufficient. Again, it doesn't mean that you haven't believed the gospel. It just means that maybe you're a little bit confused. And that might mean then that you need to make sure and look at what the scripture says so you can accurately deliver that message to someone else. Because if you and I don't guard this gospel that John is putting before us, we are not going to be effective. We can gather a crowd, but if we're not proclaiming this gospel John believed, we're not going to see lives changed. Oh, we can see outward change. But it is this message that is powerful. It is this message that when proclaimed, please get this, calls the dead to life. It's not your persuasion. It's not the emotional music we play. It's not the, the excitement that we can generate as a church that, that will get maybe more people to come down an aisle to, to, to pray a prayer where they are. John is calling us to believe something specific about who Jesus is and what he did. And if you and I don't get that message clear, not only will we be foggy in what we ourselves believe will be foggy in our presentation of, of the only hope for sinners. The Bible says that this message is the only one that rescues sinners, period. So you and I would do well to make sure we get it straight, right? Right? We want to understand this. I realize that the message doesn't end here and so we're looking at just this little text of scripture because John is saying, I'm calling you guys to believe this. Take it in. Here's what you need to believe about this. Yes, it does end in the resurrection of Christ later in this book. And it does start with the identity of Christ as God the son. But right here, what is John calling out of you? It's easy to say Jesus died for me Or Jesus died for sinners. Jesus died for his sheep. Jesus died for his people. The Bible puts it in a lot of different, uh, states it in a lot of different ways. But seriously, when you say Jesus really died for us, then that follows that we should ask this question. What does it mean he died for me? Like an example for me? Or is there something more to this? Then you look at the rest of scripture and you see Even in John's gospel, he's taking the place of people. He's taking a punishment for people. He's being executed as the worst of criminals between the worst of of criminals. But John already made it really clear he never did anything wrong. Believe it. Believe it. He really died for us, church. And that is essential to the gospel It's essential to the identity of people who enter into union with Jesus Christ. We must confess, Jesus took my place. Got to believe that. We got to present that when we share our faith. Here's something else John's calling out in us, the readers, and that is that he willingly died for us. He said he would. His, His mission was to come and lay down his life for his friends To believe that he willingly died for us means that that he wasn't just a martyr for a cause who was taken against his will and fought against it, but but they got him, they overpowered him, and they put him on the cross, and uh, they killed him. I'm not sure that's what the record is. Yes, from a human standpoint, he was in the hands of his captors, and they abused him. And yet, as you see time and again through this, As you see in in the garden, when the soldiers came to uh, to arrest him and Jesus said, I am. And they all got bowled over backwards. Who was on trial? When Pontius Pilate was, was showing his political flex and he says to Jesus, why aren't you talking? Don't you know that I have authority to crucify you? I have authority to release you. Who was really on trial? As the Lord Jesus said, you would have no authority over me unless it were given to you from my father. Yes, to believe that Jesus willingly died for us means that, that this message of the gospel is not only our hope that there was design in the cross, it actually is a pattern for a life of service that we say, as we're told, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. The basis of unselfishness, the victory over your own selfishness is to be set free by this one who died to rescue you from that selfish sinfulness. Yes, he willingly died for us because he loved us. Here's one more. You believe the statements that God made about Jesus dying for us. In other words, it doesn't just end here. This is the object of our faith. This is why Paul told the church at Corinth, I, was, I came among you and I was weak, but I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It was the same thing over and over and over again. If you had listened to Paul and you had followed his ministry, somebody, some little kid along the way is gonna say, why is it you only talk about Jesus all the time? All you talk about is the cross, is there more to it than that? Tell us to feel good about ourselves. Challenge us to new heights of excellence in business or in sports. Bring us to Philippians and say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me so you can finish out this game or this wrestling match. Maybe that isn't what that was all about. Maybe Christ himself is the message Maybe identifying yourself with Jesus in his death and his resurrection really is where power is exhibited in the lives of those who follow him. The object of our faith comes out again and again in the rest of scripture, pointed to it from the Old Testament from a distance, looking back on it in the New Testament apostolic scriptures. It is the object of our faith and it is the the primary resource for a life of service to Jesus. So I look at you again and I say, do you believe? It isn't about something that happened back in the day. Are you a believer now? We're going to be having a baptismal service coming up uh, soon and some have already approached me about that. Uh, Who ought to be baptized? Believers. Believers believers. We, we come to follow Jesus and we enter a covenant with him by faith. And we demonstrate that by publicly identifying with the death and resurrection of our rescuer. Let's pray. Father, we so need to ruminate on these thoughts We stray from orthodoxy, from from straight glory about you. uh, And we get sidetracked with positive thinking and we get sidetracked with whatever our vocation is and we think the gospel is just some pet thing to make us succeed in what we're doing. Thank you for the ugly, brutal truth of what we deserved being laid out for us, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. Show us that hope as we conclude our time together today. In Jesus' name, amen. And so from the London Confession, the demonstration of what what we Reformed Baptists believe about the Bible, we decide on controversial matters, whether it would be something going on politically or a big decision you and I have to make. What's the supreme judge Obviously, God is the supreme judge, but how does he let us know what to think and how to think? So the London Confession says, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the holy scripture delivered by the spirit into which scripture so delivered. Our faith is finally resolved. So when you hear from the Lord, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. With confidence we say, the Lord is my helper. Why why would I be afraid?